It's Dr. Seuss Podcast with me, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. This is podcast number 138, and all I can say is it's about time. We've had a bit of gap between podcasts. We're glad to be back. I'm here with my protege, the blisterious one, Bliss Young. <laughs> say hello. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm doing good today. Thank all you. All right, so let me get done with the business here. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at drseusspodcast.com or on Facebook at Dr. Seuss Podcast. You can uh, load us up on your podcast app on your smartphone. And uh, we'll subscribe, and then we'll put pop up every time the new one comes up. We hope you'll do that. We hope you give us high rate, high ratings, and spread the word. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about because we haven't really done a podcast for about uh, two months. You some have traveling in there, and some bad weather in there, and some a lot of birthing in there, and all that stuff. So today, I just came back from San Diego, um, drove all the way up. Uh, had a very full bladder when I got here. <laughs> got here just in time for John, to, producer John. Uh, and then we, uh, we, um, I was doing a postpartum visit on uh, a, a beautiful breech birth, uh, multip, and she had the. Ba- I met her on a Monday, and she had a baby on a Thursday. So that's happened a lot in my practice because I meet these people and sort of they calm down and settle down, and then they feel safe, and then they go into labor, and it's. Very rewarding for everybody, and it was a beautiful birth. It's, it's was she was in the water on all fours. Mm-hmm. I saw the picture. Yeah, well, yeah, I have I have a video now, and I've already mm-hmm. embedded it in my breach, uh, birth insights lecture for, from the next group that I would do. I think the next scheduled lecture is going to be in, um, in near Salem, Oregon, in June. Um, we had one scheduled for Atlanta in May, but it turned out to be on the same day as the, uh, March for Moms or Mother's March or something mm-hmm. like that. So. Uh, we you got mo- booted. We well, we just chose to to <laughs> move it because we didn't want to compete with that. Um, That's a good plan. Yeah, it'd be like having a, a you know a party on for your birthday on on the Super Bowl or something and competing with that. Right. You don't want to do that. So uh, anyway, it was beautiful birth, and uh, I can't wait to uh, use this video for teaching because I did learn something really unique about um, all fours birth in water, and that's the disadvantage that you have as opposed to all fours birth on land. So I'll ask you, this is not a quiz, but I'm going to ask anyway, what's missing in water that you have on land? Isaac. Gravity. New, Is- yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Gravity. Yeah. Cause you know, is it a prime app? Nope. Multip. Multip. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know how multip breaches, they come out and if everything's right, they rotate the right way and the arms come out and all that stuff. And then the head just sort of plops out. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this baby came out to all but one arm and its head. Uh, arm was in front in p- perfect position. And usually at that point in a multip, it's just going to fall out. Mm-hmm. But it, it just sat there <laughs> because it was floating. Mm-hmm. There was just no gravity. And I never even, you know, it didn't occur to me because I, I'm not a f- big fan of breach water birth uh, that that would happen. And so we ended up having to, you know, uh, do a quick maneuver and got the baby out. The baby was fine. It was great. Baby was doing a bunch of tummy scrunches under the water, and it's all on video. It's really kind of cool to watch. So how did you n- know that you actually needed to intervene? Because sometimes with, um, with uh, head down water births, they'll hang out for a while with their head out um, before they actually deliver. So how did you know that you actually needed to? Because uh, breaches will tell you what's going on with them, and this baby was doing tummy scrunches and kicks and stuff, and then it sort of stopped doing that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And then I sort of just took my finger and p- moved the arm a little bit, and it had no tone anymore. Mm, okay, yeah. So tone, 
capillary filling and tone, capillary filling is a little harder to do under the water, but tone is a really good sign yeah. that when they have good tone and then suddenly they don't, yeah. that, you know, yeah, it's time to get out. Plus, with breech bursts, Sean Walker, other people have mentioned that once they get to the belly button where the umbilicus is, mm-hmm. you generally have, if you have a good heart rate going in, you have three to five minutes um, before the baby starts to potentially get acidotic and prompt to get the baby out. And of course, three to five minutes seems like an eternity Yeah, <laughs> when you're sitting there waiting with everybody's jaws open because the baby's so close. It's like, okay, come out, come out, come out. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had been five or six minutes uh, at that point. And, so, and you're feeling heart tones through the cord? No, you don't, you don't even, once you're there, you're there. What does he think when he says you have good heart tones? How is oh, how would you be assessing? Going into labor. Oh, I mean, before. going into the second right. stage, right. If, you've, if you haven't had variables, if the heart rate's been great, and then you assess the baby as it comes out with, you know, with capillary filling and tone, that sort of thing. But once the baby's halfway out, you, you know, we don't really bother with heart tones. We don't really want to touch the cord. Right. Sometimes it can spasm. And yep. We don't want to really touch the baby because it might cause the baby to sort of do a moral reflex and extend its head. So we just leave it alone. But at some point it stopped doing what it was doing. And so we got it out. But it was really beautiful. Perfect. It was great. Awesome. Right. So how have you been? I was trying to recount. I, I don't know how. I mean, I've been good. I've well, been good. Well, um, it's been raining a lot in Southern California. I, I'm actually really digging the rain. I know. Yeah. I was away for a week in Hawaii when the, you had that really, really rainy week. But mm-hmm. I have to tell you, nature is sort of miraculous because the last podcast we talked about the devastating fires. And then we got, you know, not a hundred year rain, but we've getting, we're getting a lot of rain this year in Southern California. And, you know, you go back out where it, was, where it looked like uh, somebody had dropped a bomb a couple mm-hmm. months ago, mm-hmm. and now it looks like Ireland. Up in Malibu? Malibu, Agoura, Calabasas. I haven't, I haven't driven up oh there Oh my God, the, it, first... the mountains are just this beautiful green, mm-hmm. and it looks like velvet uh, because all the big plants are gone. So it's just a carpet of sort of grass and, and six-inch weeds, and it's just really beautiful. Yeah, LA is actually really gorgeous. Oh, and there's rains. snow on the mountains right now. You look outside your window, and you... You can see lots of snow. Lots of snow, <laughs> and there. Some of them are really just completely capped with snow. Yeah, I know that some so, some people that had um, devastation of the fire in their areas. You know, when a lot of rain comes, we also have to be con- concerned with mudslides. So I know we've kind of we're enjoying the rain, but at the same time, we're thinking about our friends and family that are still, you know, in a precarious situation out there. Yeah, that's true. Um, I haven't heard of any terrible mudslides right now. No, fingers crossed, because it's still raining today and tomorrow. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but I I do have to say that it's important that in the busyness of a day, especially in a city like Los Angeles, that we actually take a a moment to look up from our smartphones and from our dashboards and look outside at sometimes how pretty it is, even when it's raining. Which, of course, we love, but, you know, if you live in Seattle, you probably don't love it so much, but (laughs) we do sort of like it that way. I'm loving it. Yeah, you're all wrapped up in it. Nice jacket with a little scarf on. Is mm-hmm. that your India scarf? This is my India scarf. Yeah, yeah. it's nice. I, you gave me one. I have a gift from you. I know. And, <laughs> it took me forever and, to get it to you. And we have uh, we have new coordinated T-shirts thanks what? to uh, Deborah, a listener and an attendee to the Utah Breach Conference from Michigan. Uh, we have Dr. Stu Fan Club T-shirts. Thanks, Deborah. We're gonna we're gonna take a picture together today with our T-shirts and put it up on uh, Instagram for you. So we, we've hit the big time because now we have T-shirts. <laughs> we have a fan club. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> three people. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, let's just catch up on some of the stuff that we've been doing because we have a lot to cover, 
And um, well, you a- called me from Hawaii or texted me from Hawaii and said, we really have to do a podcast. I've been getting such, you know, good feedback. And so is there something specific that happened when you were there that like prompted you to be no, like... No, but everybody we- that attends, they all, they all know us. Yeah. And they all love your voice. Thanks. They do. Yeah. <laughs> they do. They like when you go, like when you have one word responses to me or when you go, <laughs> at the end of the podcast, you go, bye-bye. I know, because you, you told me you liked it, so I do it every time yeah, now. Yeah, I like when you do that. It's really <laughs> good. So anyway, so I just, I'd like to uh, just talk a little bit obstetrical stuff. Since, since the last podcast, um, I've had some really, we've had some good stuff that's happened and some not so good stuff that's happened, but that would be the typical life, life of a, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a birth practitioner. Human. <laughs> Correct. So um, I've had three VBAC after two C-sections. That's awesome. That's great. I've mm-hmm. had two breaches. Mm-hmm. And a set of twins, a vacuum, a couple normal births, one abruption. Or, you know, actually, I don't think it was an abruption. I think it was, um, it was a very strange placenta. It was a trilobed placenta. And when we finally looked at the vessels after we got the back the placenta back from the hospital, it has little vessels running in the membranes. And I just think that maybe one of those little vessels tore. I don't think it was a vasa previa. But I think it tore and the baby began to um, probably hemorrhage. And it was doing great up until a certain point. And then suddenly the heart rate started to have variables down to 60. At home? At home. With bleeding? With more bleeding than you'd expect, but not not bleeding that you and I haven't seen. How, f- after, uh, how far along was she at that point? Eight centimeters. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, we ended up transferring. She ended up going through the usual hospital admission process with some <laughs> resistance and some delays and things like that. Finally, she ended up getting a C-section and the baby ended up initially crying, but then having to go to the NICU. And I re- had to be to report that that baby is um, uh, doing very well as of today. It, it went into a little bit of shock. It was anemic and its kidneys and liver went into failure, which is really typical. Mm-hmm. But because babies are so resilient and they have a strong will to live, that um, through the great work of the NICU people, um, the baby's doing great. So it sounds like the call to transport, the call to have a C-section, and the call to be in NICU were all really appropriate. Yeah, I mean, you could look back and you could say, we should, could have done this then, or we could have done this a little earlier, or we could have not run into some roadblocks at the hospital, and they could have just paid more attention to the, the what was going on rather than some of the politics. But... But ultimately, yeah, I mean, would things have happened quicker had she been in the hospital for her labor? Yeah, they would have. But this is one of those things where people choose to have a home birth. We recognized it right away. We called the ambulance. The ambulance got her there in like seven minutes or six minutes. Uh, they were at our at our house in three or four minutes. It was really fast. And um, it would have been nice... To have, and one of the articles we'll talk about, um, we can actually get into that one. This is a good art. There's a couple of good articles about it, having more midwives. But one of the uh, things would have been really nice to have smooth transition. All right, between the home, home. and hospital. Uh huh. Right. Yeah, that would be and number that, one. That is not something that was that seems to be happening at that particular hospital. And of course, when you call nine one one, you don't generally have the opportunity to choose where you're going. Okay, so... 
So Bliss is going to make a technical change here, I think. Is that right? Yeah, my headphones are uncomfortable. Sorry. Keep going. All I'm right. listening. All right. So listen, so as long as we got right onto that subject of, of, of smooth transition and stuff, I've got two articles here that I want to get into um, talking about the, the United States need for more midwives for better maternity care. And before I do that, actually, we should, it comes on the heels of the article that we talked about in one of the last podcasts about the failure to deliver series. You remember that quite well, don't you? Yes. Right. And yes. then Laura Gilkey wrote a beautiful response to that, um, which people can find on my, on my Facebook page if they scroll back to December 10th on the Dr. Stuart Fishbein OBGYN Facebook page. You'll scroll back to December 10th. There'll be a post uh, of a linking it to Laura Gilkey's response to the, I think it was a four-part series on um, the, f- the, f- the flaws in home birth and the, and the flaws in midwifery care put out by the Herald Tribune, which I think is a, I think is that a Miami paper maybe? I'm not sure where it's from, but it's, from, it's a Florida paper. Um, I wouldn't even language it the flaws because there was a lot of stuff in there that was not, not necessarily normal for most midwives, you know. Right, and Laura, and Laura points it out really, really well. Pretty bad. And so, but you know, and much to their credit, not that I agree with the, what they did, but the writer of that article then had a rebuttal to mm-hmm. Laura's article, mm-hmm. and um, she basically states the following: She says. Um, in response, some home birth proponents have claimed that we were wrong to have analyzed national birth certificate data to reach our conclusions and that our methodology in doing so was flawed. And she points out Laura Gilkey's article from December 10th. Um, so she goes on to say, I would like to fact check some of Laura's mm-hmm. points of view. Mm-hmm. So I will just get into some of these. One of them is the claim that to use national birth certificate data to to stake the article's claims is problematic, is one of the things that Laura says. She says, fact, we based our, our data analysis on previous peer-reviewed public, published studies by Amos Grunbaum, an obstetrician-gynecologist affiliated with New York Presbyterian Hospital. So I'll ask you, do you know Amos Grunbaum? No, I personally don't know him, but okay. I'm not familiar. You know who he either. is? No. Okay. Do you? Yeah, I do mm-hmm. I, very well. He's one of the Cornell duo along with Frank Chervenak, who are the home birth um, antagonists, or I would call them home birth haters, but I don't really think that that's a fair... But they they are a very anti-home birth. And New York is not doing very well in terms of midwifery care, correct? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think they're, they're one of the states that um, that doesn't have a lot of options for people outside of obstetrics. But but what I'm the point I'm making is that she... This author is relying on data from a guy who skews his data. And I, we've actually on previous podcasts gone over some of the things that they've talked about. But, in, in, and she quotes Grunbaum saying that the quote, the CDC database is comprehensive database and the best database in the world to assess birth outcomes. CDC? That's what Grunbaum says. Mm-hmm. He says all studies, including the WAX study, Snowden study, which I don't know what that one is, and the Grunbaum studies his own studies, <laughs> have gone through a rigorous peer-reviewed process and improvements and changes before being published. Now, that's true, but I think everyone who listens to me who supports what we do is skeptical of the wax paper for sure. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what that is, you have to look it up. Um, we've also done, I think, in my on my blog page somewhere back in three, four, or five years ago, whenever that came out, I did a, 
analysis of the wax paper, and so did some other people who did a better job than me, and I put links to it there. But he's quoting these papers as being proof that this was accurate, and I would say that this is, the, uh, I would say the exact opposite. So this is one of those things where two people can look at the same data and come to different conclusions. Mm-hmm. The next thing the author says is that claim that she said, Laura, Laura Gilkey says, most states do not adequately track out-of-hospital births. Florida is an exception. She says, fact, all 50 states track uh, births the same way on birth certificates according for the CDC. Birth certificates indicate the birth attendant, the birth setting, and in this case of home birth, whether it was planned or unplanned. Okay. She says that, but I don't think that that's true. On the birth certificate? Yeah. No, not ours. Yeah. That's the one we So again, once again, about. she's stating something that I'm not sure where she's coming from, but she says that all birth certificates do that, and I don't think that that's true at all. And one of the flaws in, in, that, that she does point out, which I agree with, is that in California, if someone is transferred from home and has a hospital birth, you can't tell from the birth certificate that that was a unsuccessful home birth. Correct. Right. So that should change because we have much better data if they have forms that actually are more accurate about that sort of thing. But to claim that, that they are that way to defend her statistics seems a bit flawed to me. Well, we also have the mana stats now, too. Not everybody participates, but it's probably a better way to be able to to keep track of home births. It is uh, for maybe for maybe for head down vaginal births. We I know that as part of our review of literature on breech birth, the mana stats. Rick Safries and I looked at the mana stats, and and the, they don't actually tell you the whether they were planned or unplanned. And they don't ever tell you the skill of the practitioner. For breaches. For breaches. It's mm-hmm. really hard to tell. And the breach data in the Manistats isn't very good. I mean, it's okay, but it's certainly a lot worse than you'd expect from a study where you're, where you're dealing with just people who plan a home birth with a skilled practitioner. Mm-hmm. She also says, fact, again, quoting Laura Gilkey, Florida birth certificates do not indicate both the actual and intended place of delivery. They indicate the only, only the actual place of delivery. Oh, this is what no. This is what she, the the uh, writer says. Um, so they indicate only the actual place of the. So that's what I was saying is that is that what happens is is that that skews statistics about home birth um, toward the better for home birth. It's not really fair. Some of these home birth stats sh- should be a little worse because they are transports that do end up, you know, in the hospital and they're not built built as a home birth. She says, in Florida, birth certificates um, ask providers to indicate whether a home birth was planned or unplanned, but that is not the same as indicating actual versus intended place of delivery. If a mother in Oregon planned to have a home birth but was transferred to the hospital for complications, the birth certificate will distinguish the baby was born in the hospital, but that the delivery started out at home. All right, but that's about the only state that I know of that does that. I don't think I just know that that. we don't, for sure. Right. Under the same scenario in Florida, the birth certificate would indicate only that it was a hospital delivery and no data is collected about the original intent. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not sure exactly what point she was trying to disprove that Laura said. But anyway, it just goes to show the difficulty in reporting on data. As I said before, I mean, data, there's biases in all data and you really have to look at these things. And there is no... 
um, consensus sometimes on from state to when you have state to state to state to state, mm-hmm. you don't really have, you're not comparing apples to apples. Right. Um, okay, she, saw this, she says that Laura, Dr., or Laura, said, Laura Gilkey says, uh, our numbers weren't called out of a national pool, excuse me, called out of a national pool that takes neither planning nor professionalism into account. All right. Well, she says, fact, the national pool, which is the CDC data, takes both planning and professionalism into account. So too does our analysis. And then she quotes Grunbaum again. She says, following Grunbaum's methodology, we analyzed only home births in which the attendant was a midwife, indicating that it was planned and attended by a professional. Okay. Now, again, I'm not sure how Grunbaum knows that. Uh, some birth certificates, they, you know, I guess they, they, they're signed by somebody, but they're not always signed by necessarily the, the attendant. I know that from when I used to work in a hospital. Um, so, uh, again, this is a little bit confusing and I just wanted to bring this stuff up because this, 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 I could quit there because there's more, more stuff about that. But I, I just think that I brought it up because this controversy is going to go on. It's always going to go on. Mm -hmm. And when you see an article that's very, fairly negative, that got a lot of attention about home birth midwifery, it flies in the face of what we, you and I would say is common sense and what we see with our colleagues and the skill of the midwifery and the care and the dedication that we have at home and the outcomes that we have, which are seemingly better than that would imply from that article. Oh, yeah. And I don't think that those those points even addressed some of the worst parts of that article at all. So, but yes. No, I gonna... think she purposely avoided that. She was, mm-hmm. you know, because there are certain things that Laura said that, w- that were, you can't argue with. Yeah. But again, I, th- I think anytime somebody's quoting Grunbaum or one of the other things we, we, I think I talked about in a previous podcast, quoting Dula Danny mm-hmm. in something, mm-hmm. all right, you know that there's a potential bias. It's just like clo- quoting he, she who shall not be named mm-hmm. in an article. When they, when they do that, then we, you know there's sort of bias. And, you know, I know that Grunbaum has academic credentials, but there's been many rebuttals to the, to their data and they basically taken some data and then they've made like three or four, they're making a career out of their data and, um, they have an agenda as do you and I, but I try to think that our agenda is not to condemn hospital birthing and not to praise home birthing more so than they deserve. They both deserve praise and some of them occasionally they deserve condemnation. That's, that's the case. Well, I specifically, I mean, obviously home birth is not for everyone. Everyone's not comfortable with it. But I do think that there there should be more of a distinction between normal physiological deliveries attended by people who specialize in that and people who specialize in complications of pregnancies and surgeries. You know, that, that there's a distinction between the two and, and each person is utilized for what their skill set is rather than... Um, you know, confusing that. So that's that's where I think um, we're not really doing a good job because the hospital is not really not really built to support normal physiological delivery. It's just not. And if I didn't say that Bliss was the best sidekick in the world, then I just want to repeat myself again, <laughs> saying that Bliss is the best sidekick in the world because without knowing what I was going to discuss next, dun, 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 dun. You, you, basically you summed up the next two ar- the the next two articles, which are one. The U.S. needs more midwives for better maternity care. 
an article in Scientific American from February of 2019, just out. Awesome. And, and to lower maternal and infant mortality rates, we need more midwives. Uh, from, hmm, I, I must have cut off where, the, where, where that's from, right? But we will put the, put the links up on the Dr. Seuss podcast page. Well, can I tell you something? And you can tell me how they're, what they're thinking we're going to do with all these midwives. But when I went to the peer review a couple of weeks ago, you weren't able to come. But, um, you know, there's a lot of midwives here in L.A., they're there and we're and that's just the la group right I mean, and I we're mean, pumping out more midwives all the time so what are we going to do with these midwives unless we transform the way that healthcare is actually managed here well we are transforming it we are i don't mean just that we're doing more home births right you mean that we're more integrated into the system with insurance and hospitals and all of that where the effort is put into it you can, you begin to see change. There's you know sometimes when there's more effort, then people get their back up and there's more resistance. But ultimately, the I you know I know this is naive, but the right will win out. All right, what's correct will win out. Okay, and the pendulum has swung way too far toward the medical model a long time ago, and the results are not good. And people are recognizing that, and that's why mainstream. Uh, publication like Scientific American. I don't even know why they were doing this, but the fact that they put this this article out is a good thing. Sometimes you see them in the New York Times. Sometimes you see them in the Washington Post. These are mainstream people talking about midwives and midwifery care and some of the not-so-good things that are happening in the hospitals right now. Some of the racial disparity, which we'll get into in a second, that yeah. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, let me... Let me elaborate on that by just reading uh, like this introduction here. Great. This is from Scientific American... February 2019, credit goes to a a woman, I think credit by mean they mean the writer, was Ramona Ring. And she writes, despite the astronomical sums that the U.S. spends on maternity care, mortality rates for women and infants are significantly higher in America than in other wealthy countries. And because of a shortage of hospitals and OBGYNs, especially in rural areas, many women struggle to access proper care during pregnancy. Moreover, the rate of cesarean section is exceedingly high at 32%. The WHO considers the ideal rate to be 10 to 15%. And women are feeling pressured by their providers to have this procedure. So then she goes on and she says, widespread adoption of midwife-directed care could alleviate all these problems. In many other developed countries, such as the United Kingdom, France, and Australia, midwifery is at least as common as care by an obstetrician. These are often hospital-based, but nonetheless midwifery care. Because mm-hmm. I know Australia has a very, very low home birth rate, mm-hmm. but they have a high midwifery rate. And they have very smooth transfer of care from midwives to obstetricians inside the hospital setting. Um, in the U.S., certified midwives and nurse midwives must hold a graduate degree from an institution accredited by the American College of Nurse Midwives and certified professional midwives or LMs like like we are, Mm -hmm. must undergo at least two years of intensive training. This is designed to make midwives experts in normal physiologic pregnancy and birth. Thus, for women with low-risk pregnancies who wish to deliver vaginally, it often makes sense to employ a midwife rather than a more costly surgeon. Yet only about 8% of births in the United States are attended by midwives. Well, 8% is up. That's not home birthing. Mm Mm-hmm. That's 8%. That includes hospital-based CNMs. Mm, that's why it's up. Yeah, it's not up that much. Okay. She goes on to say, the roots of Americans' 
aversion to midwifery go back to the late 1800s, when the advent of germ theory and anesthesia reduced much of the danger and discomfort associated with childbirth. The benefits of these technologies brought doctors to the forefront of maternity care and pushed midwives aside. Obstetricians helped to bar midwives from practicing in hospitals, which were now considered the safest birth settings. And by the early 1960s, midwifery was virtually obsolete. Mm-hmm. Studies show that midwife-attended births are as safe as physicians-attended ones, and they are associated with lower rates of cesarean section and other interventions that can be costly, risky, and disruptive to the labor process. Again, we're talking about the what I always call the 85%, and that's the 85% of women who are essentially low risk mm-hmm. when they go into labor. To bring it back in the mainstream, midwives must fully integrate into the medical system. Some states currently refuse to recognize them as legitimate practitioners, and some severely limit what midwives are allowed to do. If midwives are allowed to work alongside other practitioners, patients would get the care advantages, and if difficulties arose, a woman whose home birth suddenly became complicated could be seamlessly, and I love the word that she uses, seamlessly, transferred to a hospital. Um, That makes perfect sense. Yep. And that's how it works in England. Yep. And that's how it works in uh, Denmark. And apparently that's how it works, even if it's not, we're not talking home births in Australia, but if they have a midwife-led unit or birth center affiliated with a hospital and a woman needs to be transferred, there isn't this skepticism and delay and other things like I saw two weeks ago yeah. when I transferred a woman from home to a hospital that was not midwife-friendly and the person on call happened to just be a laborist who doesn't work there very often, who was very obtuse. Uh, and, and resistant to even hearing what we had to say. I'm standing there, the hu- husband's standing there, the mother's contracting, and she won't take any answers from the husband or me. Where were you? I'm not talking about that. What part of town? Oh, Burbank. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, I want to know if it was San Diego. Anybody in SoCal can figure it out. San Diego, Orange County, Ventura. No, Burbank, yeah, Burbank. Burbank. Okay. All right. Okay. All right, so then it goes on and says, even when state laws are favorable, women who wish to work with midwives often face financial obstacles. Medicaid will cover all midwifery services, but the requirement does not extend to private insurers. Half of planned non-hospital births are currently paid for by patients themselves, compared with just 3.4% of hospital births. They're talking about Medicare? Medi-Cal, I mean? Medi-Cal. Okay. Can you read that sentence again? I said Medicaid, which is Medi-Cal. Mm-hmm. We'll cover all midwifery services. No, it won't. It will pay twelve hundred dollars. Well, yeah, yeah, it covers it, but that's what they think it's worth. Yeah, we can't do a home birth and what we do for twelve hundred dollars. So no, the but only for some reason they pay birth centers more, quite a bit more. Yeah, they pay the facility fee quite a bit more. I think it's like twenty five or thirty five hundred dollars. Even I've heard even higher numbers. And yeah. and if you combine that with the with the twelve hundred dollars they pay you, uh, and you, you I, I know a couple midwives who own birth centers who do home birthing, but for Medi-Cal patients, they'll only do birth center birthing. Yeah, which is, uh, it's disappointing that they can't have a home birth, but it is great that they can get midwifery services covered and more more and more birth centers are accepting Medi-Cal, which is great. It's, it's, been, it's um, moving in the right direction. Yeah, and then lastly, she says, there are, there are, sadly, there are only around 350 existing freestanding birth centers in the entire nation. And nine states lack regulations for licensing such facilities. More government support for birth centers would help midwives meet a growing demand 
which has already fueled an increase of 82% in centers since 2010. Okay, now I, I highlighted the words more government support because you know what I'm going to say about that, right? You don't like when the government's involved. The government should get out of the way. Yeah. And then birth centers will pop up everywhere. The reason there are so few birth centers is because the government is in the way. Well. So maybe government support could look like, okay, we'll get out of the way. There's not a re- lot of regulations with birth centers here in California. No, not in California. In LA. Some states are not allowed at all. Yeah, but, I'm, but I, I don't necessarily know that that's the only reason why there's not a lot of birth centers. That's all. I have to, I had I owned one so I have some inside. Yeah, I was I was a, a small shareholder. Though. I know. So, you know, it what didn't have anything to do with. Oh, well, maybe the parking situation, you know, getting getting a bigger facility had like the limitations with parking and all of that kind of limited where we could go and and that kind of thing. But, yeah. You know, well, my typical point is that um is that I don't think that we need government to regulate things more. I think we need government to deregulate and allow birth centers to compete with hospitals and stop and, and you know hospitals and off, often will make it more difficult because they'll be lobbying the state capitals that the that they that they work in to make it more difficult for birth centers to open up simply because they're competition. Uh, and I've seen that firsthand. I think we need to start with insurance coverage. If we could get it covered by insurance companies, the private insurance companies, then I think a lot more clients would um, opt for midwifery care. I had two people call me up last minute in the last couple of weeks, and the reason why they didn't change is because their insurance company wasn't going to cover it, and they hadn't you know, considered the cost of having an out-of-hospital delivery. So I would say start there. Yeah, and then we, and then the other article was very similar, but I, I, lo- I love a little bit of the history here um, of why Ms. W- Midwifery went away. Because as as people know, about in 1920, about 95 to 100 percent of babies were born at home. Mm-hmm. There's a great book by Suzanne Arms, which kind of started my whole journey, called Immaculate Deception, um, and she goes into detail um, into historically why midwives were pushed out, and it's pretty fascinating. Actually, yeah. Well, here's some interesting history. I even put a little highlight by it, so I figured I better read this one because it must have been important when I was going through that this morning. Um, beginning in the 1760s, American physicians developed an interest in normal obstetrics and gradually replaced or nearly eliminated female midwives. Um, one of the most famous obstetricians in American history, Joseph DeLee, who created the DeLee suction and there's there are other delete devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, said in 1916, the usual midwife of today is a very ignorant, unconscientious, and really impossible person. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know some people like that. They don't happen to be midwives, but <laughs> but um, this is a quote. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine a male, a white male obstetrician saying that today? Yes. Um, you can Yes. Oh my God! Wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't he like get hashtagged out of there? Maybe, but oh, social media would would crucify somebody like that. Is very ignorant, unconscientious, and really impossible person. Sounds like our president, actually. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> talk politics, but yeah, it happens all we, the time. No, I'm going to have John edit that out. We don't, <laughs> we don't get in, we don't get into politics here. She says in 1940, nearly half of all U.S. births took place in the hospital. 
So within 20 years, it went from like 1% to 50% from 1920 to 1940. And by 1970, that figure had reached an all-time high of 99.4% of births were taking place in the hospital. So, you know, the years that just before I was in high school and stuff like that, when I was growing up, uh, home birth was essentially obliterated. Yeah. And those were the, I think those were the years, that are the hippie years that people like Ina May and other people sort of started to come back. 70s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's about when, when she took her bus and... Mm-hmm. Ended up running out of gas in Tennessee or something like that. <laughs> I don't know how it went, but obstetricians assumed nearly complete control over what had been con- become an entirely medicalized procedure, convincing the American public that the science of obstetrics was superior to, quote, meddlesome, unquote, midwifery. God, it's like it's like an upside down world. <laughs> Who's meddlesome these days? Right, exactly. It's, the med- midwifery is meddlesome? Mid- midwifery was the opposite of meddlesome. Meddling in them taking over. More like I guess. Mm -hmm. What should have been the most exalting and and exalting? Is there a difference between the word exalting and exalting? I don't know. I don't know either. (laughs) E-X-A-L-T-I-N-G and E-X-U-L-T-I-N-G. Anyway, the author writes that. What should have been the most exalting and exalting (laughs) of experiences was riddled with horrors. Reflected one woman in her early 70s as she compared the delivery room to a butcher shop where everyone was wearing rubber gloves and I was in the middle like a trussed-up turkey. Now, I grant, I'm not a big fan of anecdotal stories and anecdotal quotes because I think it skews things, but both sides use them. So if if one side can use them, the other side can use them. Well, that's <laughs> so, somebody's personal experience, though, too. Yes? We can assume that, okay. although we don't know, that's for sure. It could mm-hmm. be made up. Mm-hmm. could be a made-up quote. When another woman requested an unmedicated birth, quote, the doctor was a little unhappy because, as he reminded me, if I was knocked out, he could just slip in those forceps and have that baby out in a minute. Since women were knocked out for delivery, strapping her wrist to the delivery table, whisking her baby off to the nursery as soon as he was born prevented her from enjoying the experience. Um, These experiences inspired a significant number of white middle-class parents to opt out of standardized medical hospital birth beginning in the 1970s, as we just talked about. Mm -hmm. By doing so, they recast home birth as a legitimate choice for those seeking more control over the birthing process rather than than just a low-cost alternative for poor or geographically isolated. So it started to become more mainstream. Almost 50 years ago. Oh, my God, that's right. That's right. I was in, I was I was in high school fifty years ago. <laughs> Sorry, Frick, frickin <laughs> not not quite actually. I got another few years before my fifty fifty high school reunion. Mm-hmm. All right, and finally they say in the seventies and eighties those who support midwifery and home birth formed organizations, hired lobbyists. I'm not sure we did a good job of that. Organized conferences and published newsletters to educate the public. The growing visibility and the increasing popularity of home birth triggered a regulatory backlash in many states, mm-hmm. as we know. Mm-hmm resulting in new and more restrictive licensing laws requiring education and certificate and certification that continued to restrict the practice of mid- midwifery. This problem is unique to the United States. In places such as Canada, home birth is integrated into the healthcare system, where in the United States it's entirely separate. The American midwives face a variety of legal and economic barriers. Yet studies have shown that states that have integrated midwifery care into their healthcare systems have better birth outcomes. Lower rates of cesarean section, low birth weight infants, and neonatal mortality. So isn't it interesting that we talk about, you know, how 
people tend to cherry pick the data. We talked about cognitive dissonance a lot on this show. Uh, how you know people tend to accept data that supports their position, ignore data that's anti the position, and then ridicule people who hold positions opposite to them. So for things like you know breach delivery, the term breach trial um, is God. For th- for things like home birth, the wax paper, or Grunbaum and Chervinex ethical papers are God, all right? But when somebody else comes out with other data that's contrary to that, it's completely ignored. Um, it can't be ignored anymore because the, the women of our country... Need to. And they're figuring it out. <laughs> they're figuring it out. Stand and up. I think all these midwives that we're putting out, um, you know, if they can't find jobs right here in Southern California, they'll, they'll move out to other parts of the country where that's great. Mm-hmm. And their laws are changing. I mean, just recently, I got a, I got an article here. It talks about midwives can legally deliver Alabama babies for the first time in decades. The Yay, state state issued five licenses. Awesome. I think congratulations. Six, probably six by now. Yeah. So congratulations to Alabama. Yes. Um, before this happened, Alabama women could choose home births, but the births could not be legally attended by anybody who knew what they were doing. Right, which is crazy. I know. Yeah. I always joke about that. Uh, that sort of thing, just I scratch my head. Mm-hmm. Speaking of scratching my head, I just saw the um, <laughs> the Stan and Ollie movie. Oh, yeah. Have you heard about it? Yeah, yeah. I heard With it Steve good. Coogan and uh, John C. Riley mm-hmm. as Laurel and Hardy. Mm-hmm. The first 15, 20 minutes, I thought was a little, I thought it was going to be a little awkward and slow. Mm-hmm. It got really, really good. Yeah, I heard it was good. It was really good. And those two guys nailed it. Because I, I mean, I think it's probably people under 50 don't even know. I asked my daughter if she knew who Laurel and Hardy was, and she didn't. I do. I'm under 50. Barely. <laughs> well, probably the same time you graduated high school. Yeah, no, no. But I, I, I'm saying that a lot of people don't know who they are. But I think for people who remember who they were and remember their thing, it was, it was, it was, I just thought it was great. Mm. And their mannerisms, like, you know, Stan scratching his head and Ollie flipping his tie and, and, you know, the, the just they, they really had it down. And I hope that I don't, you know, I'm not a big fan of the Academy Awards and stuff like that. I but, am. but I hope that they, these guys get nominated for, for what they did because mm. they did I don't it. think they are nominated. Oh, they already have their nominations yes, out? Yes, they do. Oh, will it be for next year maybe? Or do they? M- probably not. Oh, too bad. Yeah. I, I'm a, w- this is one of the things Stu and I have in common besides birth, obviously, um, is that we both really enjoy the movies. But I get I get into the Academy Awards and I make sure that I see every single movie that's nominated. I'm even going to see the shorts next year, next week. Where are they showing? Um, at the New Art Theater. Oh, by, yeah, that, mm-hmm. the art, what I call the artsy fartsy theater. Yeah. yeah, I like artsy fartsy. Me too. Um, but you can go uh, and back to back watch the animated ones and then the live action and the first year i went i saw you you in the credits yeah oh yeah i was like oh my god there's stewart he was um you consulted. i was a consultant yeah which yeah was, i forgot oh god I got, now i'm drawing an, a blank on the name of the film yeah i don't remember but it was about a baby being born in war-torn afghanistan mm. it was and yeah, she ended up bleeding out because they wouldn't let the men touch her it was pretty yeah. intense, but anyways. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the conclusion is we need to view midwives and doctors as collaborators rather than competitors. How many times have you have you and I said that? And we need We're more midwives. Fifty six percent of all U.S. counties do not have any. Of collaboration. No midwives. Fifty six. Say it again. Fifty six percent of all U.S. counties don't have a midwife. Mm. 
So they're needed. Yeah. It's good. Where so should keep, I go? Keep pumping them out. Tell me where keep, I should keep, go. keep pumping them out of school. The problem <laughs> is, is that like everybody else, they come out of school and they want to, you know, they want to stay in the city. When really what's needed is, is to be in the rural areas. But the problem is the rural areas can't financially support that. Very true. Like I did, I know we did a podcast a year or two ago about closing hospitals in northern Minnesota because it was it's my home state, so I, it affected me a little bit more. More all these hospitals, so people instead of having to drive twenty miles to the hospital, they have to drive one hundred and twenty miles. Yeah, um, that's where home birth would be really appropriate for multi. Yeah, so at least having people that can go out to these people's houses mm-hmm. and determine whether or not it's okay to stay there, yeah. or go or or whatever, because otherwise. You know, getting women in a car and, and driving in northern Minnesota in January not uh, is not a, is not a thing that you really want to plan on doing. Right. So, good news, bad news, mostly good news. Yeah, mostly good news. So, what's going on with your um, you and Hayes's? I thought you made a post the other day. About, about some, our class. Uh, some meeting. Yeah, tell us about your class. Oh man, our class is amazing. Our class is amazing. Let's hear about it. Um, well, we've talked about it a little bit on here, but I think what I'm what I'm really getting to is that we're really talking about um, the couple, the partnership, you know, and how that can facilitate a not only a smooth and connected delivery, but also you know really helping them understand what some of the pitfalls are. In the postpartum period, because, you know, the first year after a baby is born can be one of the most difficult on a relationship. And so I don't I don't necessarily know that the common childbirth education class is going into depth into some of those communication issues, um, helping them with intimacy, helping them communicate with about some of the things that they... So the, f- the focus is on the couples. Then. I mean, it is a traditional childbirth education class in, in the respect that we still talk about stages of labor, anatomy, physiology, um, coping strategies, uh, support for the actual, you know, partner to be able to help her labor support. Um, and we go over complications and, you know, all of the things that they would need to know in terms of what might happen, what a normal delivery looks like and what, you know, some of the complications are. But our emphasis that's different is having to do with sexuality in pregnancy and postpartum, intimacy and communication in the relationship, having to do with the entire pregnancy, delivery and postpartum and how it's all integrated and holistic and the feedback that we're getting from the couples and, and the men, the feedback that we're getting from the men, I think is so great. There was a, a, a doula who referred a couple to us and um, the dad, she, all the mom told him was that they were going to a childbirth education class near Cedars. And he envisioned going into a lecture hall with 40 other parents and, you know, somebody in a suit on the stage with a, with a, what do you call a slideshow? And he walks in. Yeah, Yeah, he walks into this home with Hayes and I and candles lit and three other couples. And he was was amazing. But his transformation from the beginning of class to the end of class in terms of being open and available for what she was hoping to get from him during this time was, was radical. And he was so generous with his, um, 
feedback to us that what a difference it made for them. So yeah, for those yeah. of you listening, I wish you could be sitting here right now seeing Bliss's face because it's sort of just glowing with <laughs> with um, like loving emotion. And once again, I have to say Dr. Seuss podcast works, works in mysterious ways because <laughs> I happen to have a letter here that I told Hannah that I would read on the air. Mm. And uh, you, you're the perfect person to answer it. So this is from Hannah Lawhorn in Utah. And she writes, hi, Dr. Stu and Bliss. I love your podcast and all you are doing for informing mothers and moms-to-be. I'm from Utah. I'm 25 and my husband is 36 and we were talking about having a baby. I've been trying to be as informed as possible on what the best and safest option for will be for us once I become pregnant. I have listened to yours and other podcasts about all the benefits of home birth and feel like it is what I want. The problem is my husband doesn't feel the same way. He wonders why I would want to risk not being in a hospital, as in if there was an emergency that happened to me or future baby, we wouldn't have the option to be an, an elevator away from an emergency room. I think she means operating room. Doctor, how can I help convince my husband <laughs> to see that home birth would be completely safe? Thank you, Hannah. The last, the, I'll, I'll comment on the last word. There's no way to convince anybody of anything that it's completely safe. Well, I always liked the, the, the thing that you used to talk about because you were a doctor in the hospital. But, you know, in talking about being an elevator away, you know, you used to speak about that a lot in terms of timing that it takes to transport to the hospital and getting everything set up for an emergency, that it would be the same Well, it's, it's, it's not exactly the same, but I, you know, I just had a transport and it took over 50 minutes to have a woman get from being in bed on the monitor to actually getting to the operating room. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about in the hospital? In the ho- once minutes. she got to the hospital, it still took 50 minutes to mm-hmm. get her on the table. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, want, I don't want to say that that's a reason to talk people out of hospital birthing or whatever else. I mean, I think that, that there is a misconception that when you're in the hospital, that, you, um, that if something goes wrong, that you're close to an operating room and everybody's standing there you know, all dressed and garbed and ready to go, waiting for something to go wrong, and then they get you on the table in five minutes and get the baby out. It's not generally what happens. Even in the best of situations, it may take 15 to 30 minutes uh, to get the baby out. So it isn't that simple. And Hannah, I would also say that, that you know, you, you, you wouldn't want to try to convince your husband of anything. What you want to try to do is, is go through options and let him understand and finding a supportive practitioner to sit down with you guys and talk about the pros and cons because there are pros of being in the hospital but there are many cons about being in the hospital and one of them is the chance of you having the birth experience that you want and the chance of having being a successful experience are generally less when you're low risk when you're healthy and otherwise normal being in the hospital than being at home so you're far more likely to get intervened upon you're far more likely to get medicalized you're far more likely to get uh, induced or Pitocin or an epidural or any, any end up having your baby go into sort of stress or distress and end up with a C-section rate. You know, the C-section rate for women walking in with their first baby without any problems in a hospital is generally about 25%. So one out of every four women where it's the same group of women in the home birthing setting is only about 7%. So you're talking about a threefold increase in cesarean section rate simply by the model by which you're cared for in the hospital. But, you know, if, if people have a set of values and a set of life experiences. And so it, I, I, I want to hear from Bliss about this, but, but to try, you know, I don't, 
I don't know your relationship well enough to know, but this is ultimately it's your decision and you know, you'd like him to come along. So I think that him taking an interest in these things, reading some of the um, things that we could offer, going to our websites, um, talking to, you know, sitting down with a home birth midwife. There's many excellent ones. I don't know what part of Utah you're in, uh, but I happen to know the state fairly well. I just taught a course there. Um, so, well, Bliss, what do you think? What, what, what would you say to, uh, to Hannah? Well, I think, I think what you said is really important is that it's a very individualized conversation in terms of helping someone understand where their fears are and specifically addressing and giving them information around those concerns. So it's, a, it's very different for each couple. I find that the women often are the ones who lead this decision. And so I, I think that you pointed that to that as well. If she's feeling very strongly about this is what feels comfortable and safe for her, then she needs to support him in a positive way of getting the information and education that he needs to to, to cross that bridge to meet her there. Um, so talking to someone who can actually sit down, because I don't think it's a quick thing that we can address in, in a in two sentences. But the other thing I would say is that there's a lot of myths about the hospital being more safe than home birth. And there's not necessarily an acknowledgement of this beautiful, natural biological function that's interfered with in very subtle ways. We are not even going to the dramatic things of having a C-section, having Pitocin and an epidural. But in the very subtle ways, just like in nature, everything is interconnected. And if you, if you in, insert something into that system, it throws everything off. Our bodies, especially during this time in labor, are so, it's so beautifully integrated that having the understanding and acknowledgement of kind of giving that its time and space to be able to unfold and having a practitioner who can really understand and recognize when there actually is a complication that needs to be addressed. And there's different layers of addressing those complications from preventative care in prenatal to addressing it with the medications and skill set that we have at home to acknowledging when it, it may not be appropriate to be out of the hospital and we actually need the things that the hospital has to offer. So there's lots of layers to that conversation that would need to be unpacked. Um, but continue to educate yourself and continue to help him um, have the freedom to ask his questions openly and to have somebody that really respects and honors where he's coming from. And I think that's what happened with this gentleman in our class was that he was welcomed in and all of his questions were op openly answered and he was acknowledged as being a positive contribution from his perspective and was able to gradually over, you know, 12 hours come from having tons of fear to con actually potentially considering having a home birth, which, you know, that's, that's amazing, but it took 12 hours. Yeah. And, and it, it is, it needs to be like a, 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 a really a face to face, mm -hmm. no time limit, you know, at his speed, at his pace, mm -hmm. he may never agree to, you know, to, to see it as the same way you see it. But I think if you find a, person that you can go to, a midwife that you can go to, a doula that you can have a conversation with, start there and have, you know, have a consult, have a face-to-face -face consult where he, like Bliss says, she, he can openly ask his questions. 
And if you're not getting what you consider to be satisfactory answers, then seek, seek out other, other information. I mean, I'm not saying that I want to do this but on a frequent basis, but I often do Skype interviews mm-hmm. with people, not necessarily for this particular reason, but for breaches or something from other parts of the country. They'll, they'll get on and we'll spend an hour. On, you know, we, we charge a consult fee and we spend an hour on Skype going over that. But for something like this too, if he wants to talk to somebody like me and have questions, you can write, we could set something up and, and, and have a session online where we could have a back and forth. And again, it's not, it's a no pressure situation, you know, and without knowing his own life experiences, what Bliss and I are saying are really generalizations. We really can't. Maybe we should do a live webinar. You and I. Well, yeah, like our old lectures that we did, but we could do it live and it could be, you know, people could watch it from all over the country. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, that would be kind of cool. Okay, yeah. that's an assi- that's an assignment <laughs> uh, really for 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 you. Cause I don't <laughs> I don't I don't really need anything more on my plate right now, but I would lo- I loved those those were they Wednesdays? I think they were Wednesdays. Yeah, those Wednesdays. What do we call it? Um, nervous anticipation. Yeah, nervous anticipation, mm-hmm. right? We would have anywhere from two to eight couples, and we would just talk about birth options. Yeah. Not necessarily home birth, as you said. Just all of all, it. all options. Yeah, all of it. So we'll all think right. about that. Well, we got it. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, we were po- all over the place. We were all over the place, <laughs> but that's because we haven't been around for. I mean, we haven't had one for a while. So anyway, listen. I want to thank you guys for listening. Um, we will be back shortly uh, with podcast number one thirty nine. But this has been podcast one thirty eight with uh, Bliss Young and me, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, uh, and Dr. Stu's podcast. We hope you'll find us again. Uh, we hope you subscribe to us. Every smartphone has a podcast app. Just put in Dr. Dr. and then STU, and it usually pops up. And it's a little baby in a cradle, and you can just click on it, and then you'll be on your phone forever. All right, we hope you enjoyed listening to us, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.